knives, machetes, saws, and shears, multi-tools, shovels, swords, axes, spears, hatchets, and tomahawks. If it cuts, snips, slices, or chops, Midway USA has it. Find great gift ideas in our huge selection of pocket knives and other everyday carry folding knives. Make a statement or create a family legacy with one of our top-of-the-line hunting knives. We've got a great selection of manual and electric sharpeners, too. For just about everything for the outdoors, check out MidwayUSA.com. Boat Trader, America's largest boating marketplace, offering easy financing and over 100,000 boat listings to choose from. Sell, find, and finance new or used boats on America's largest boating marketplace. Visit BoatTrader.com to get started. Good evening, everybody. Welcome to the Habitat Podcast, where we are trying to become better habitat managers for our wildlife, our woods, our hunting, everything we like to do outside. Just trying to learn more and get better at it. This week is a little bit different. Uh, Like I mentioned last week, which was also a little bit different, uh, we are talking about forestry this week. It's something I don't know very much about, so I figured let me find somebody call them and ask them a bunch of questions. That's what we did here. Uh, the guy's name is Greg. He's a great guy um, from New England, New Hampshire specifically, and now I believe he resides in PA. Very knowledgeable guy, very humble guy. Um, I found that pretty respectable. So uh, I'm going to call Jesse up and get Greg on the line and, and dive into this as, as much as we can. So it's a good discussion. I'm really excited about it. We, it's, a, it's a fairly long one. We have went into a ton of different things. But I am confident that when you are done listening to this podcast, you will pretty much know how to go about a timber harvest. Um, I mean, there might be some things we missed, but we really covered a lot. So, like I said, very excited. And uh, let's, let's get right into it. One more thing before we go. I'd like to thank our partners at Packer Max line of Cultipackers and also at Outdoor Devotion. Uh, Both our our deer hunting tools, Packer Max, the Jelana Call to Packers for Food Plots, right now, perfect timing. And then Outdoor Devotion, well, if you're at work and bored and want to get all jacked up about deer hunting, that's uh, some videos there you could watch. So, anywho, let's call Greg and get right into it. All right, Greg, can you hear me? Yep, I got you. And Jesse. We're here, man. All right, guys. Welcome back. We have Greg. Greg, say your last name. Burnson. The the D T is kinda silent, so All right. kinda pronounced <laughs> R N S O N. Alright, Burnson. I like it. I'm glad I asked you because I didn't want to uh do that wrong. So right. Thanks for coming on tonight, brother. I uh like to get this thing started normally. Uh, if you heard a podcast before, you kind of know how it goes, but tell us about who you are, where you're from, and what we're going to talk about today. All right, so um, I guess we'll, we'll go back a little ways. Um, I grew up in, in Connecticut, actually, um, so that was that was interesting, believe it or not. Uh, you know, Connecticut's a pretty developed New England state, but 
Um, lived in a, a fairly rural town and uh, was fortunate enough to go to a high school that actually had an ag program and an FFA chapter, which that'll that'll play into the story as we go along here, I guess. Um, <laughs> and uh, so then from part of the part of the reason I guess that's kind of important is uh, my work study job through high school was actually on a a fishing game club, um, and it's probably not like any club that that your listeners might be thinking of. Um, being in Connecticut, you know, land is very expensive, but these were guys from, like, southeastern Connecticut, New York City, stockbrokers, CEOs, like, you know, these guys show up in their Benzes and stuff to go uh, grouse hunt on the weekend type of a deal. Um, so I, I was just their $7 an hour minion, of course. I, I had a lot. Wow. Um, that had gone to start somewhere. Yeah. And, uh, but they had a pretty, pretty good sized chunk of ground somewhere in 2,500 to 3,000 acres. Um, so they were always doing timber work. They had private trout stream, duck pond, the, the whole shebang. So it was kind of, kind of where I got thrown into it. Um, so from there, uh, I went to college at the University of New Hampshire, um, I have an uncle that just retired as a professor there, not not anything forestry or wildlife related. He was in the animal sciences and genetics and that kind of stuff. But um, that's kind of that was where my formal college forestry stuff uh, started. Um, was a good place to go. Like I said, you know, I, that was kind of summer vacation. My whole childhood was go go see the aunt and uncle and the cousins up there. So it was kind of a, a second home already. And uh, Finished school and, and truthfully didn't didn't really have um, didn't didn't really know where I was going to end up. I guess would be the best way to put it. Um, when I started school, I kind of figured I'd end up in northern New Hampshire or northern Maine, working on uh, you know big expansive timber tracks and got into logging through my my uh, college career more so than than just dabbling and cutting firewood and stuff when I was younger and. That kind of lit the fire, I guess. Um, just liked running a chainsaw and diesel fumes and whatever. And, um, so stuck with logging after college. I was logging in the winter and doing residential tree work in the summer. And, um, hadn't hadn't left college town. Was just kind of dubbing around, but making good money and, and having a lot of fun. And <laughs> Pen- Pennsylvania wasn't even on the radar, to be honest with you. Um, so you know this is a this is as redneck a story as it's going to get, which is kind of odd considering who my wife and I are now, I guess. But um, so I'm a year out of college and I'm I'm at a county fair, uh, New Hampshire equivalent of a county fair, I guess. And I had a bunch of friends down there that were into antique tractors and pulling oxen and you know whole whole group of Very farm cool. kids that went in in in, uh, in New Hampshire and I bump into the old that. Our paths had crossed. We were cases or anything, and you know, just struck up conversation. Morning, you know, what are what are you up to? How's it going? She's like, "Well, I'm leaving for Penn State in ten days." <laughs> and uh, you know, it's it's like as I said, it's comical now because um, I don't want to suggest that I've got game at all. Um, but I said, uh, "I'm like, well." I'm I'm living on on this dairy farm with a mutual friend of ours. He's one of my best friends, and she had known him growing up in in 4-H and being an ag kid herself. And 
which is, you know, I'm, I'm living at his place on the farm, and this is what I'm up to. And, you know, if you want to grab dinner and beer at, in college, you know, in the college town one more time before you take off, here's my phone number, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and she's way more polite, so she took it, and, I, you know, I'm laughing about it afterwards as I climb in my truck to go home. I'm like, you know, she'll never call me. Sure enough, a day or two later, she's like, well, this is my work schedule. I don't know if you're going out for that beer. <laughs> wow, nice. It worked. So, yeah, we uh, so we kind of, you know, we, we caught up. We actually did a couple hikes up in the White Mountains and stuff. She's, she's outdoorsy, too. And, uh, you know, then she took off to, to Penn State. And uh, we, you know, both, both kind of realized that neither one of us is expected it really to, to go anywhere, I don't think, at the time, but we weren't looking for anybody else either, so um, one to another, and I guess as you can say now, the rest is, is history. I moved down here for her second year of school, and when she knew for sure that it was going to call Pennsylvania Hustle, and uh, so to live with her right outside college one for a year, and then she took her job at the high school where we're at now. And, uh, you know, small, small world, uh, as I said before, I was, I was pretty active in FFA in high school. Um, she went above and beyond, was a state FFA officer in New Hampshire for two years and ran for national office. And she's now the uh, ag teacher and FFA advisor here at Wellsboro, um, which and is the town. What, what does FFA stand for? So it's the... Formal definition was uh, Future Farmers of America. Okay. Um, they've kind of gotten away from that a little bit um, in that they cover so much stuff now based on uh, leadership and, and a, you know, just a huge variety of careers. You know, the slogan is, like, agronomy to zoology and, and everything in between. Okay. Um, Across the country, it's, it's over well over 150,000 members. Uh, national convention, they'll have 60-something thousand high school and, and college-age students, advisors, guests, alumni, uh, all all invade Indianapolis, Indiana, which is it's a sight to see. Um, anybody oh, that's in a rural rural town, you know, probably recognizes the. Uh, the blue, the blue corduroy jacket with the the big FFA emblem on the back. Um, yeah, it's uh, it's it's pretty cool. Um, we, her and I don't don't have any kids, but um, at the same time, she's got over a hundred of them that are through the through the door every day. And um, I volunteer where I can, uh, you know, with the chapter. And um, I think I told you and before all this, you know, we've had a couple of state-winning forestry teams that we've we've taken out there. Forestry is one of the, the disciplines that is actually uh, state-level contest, and then you can, can compete at the national level, which is kind of cool. Oh, wow. No, yeah, I didn't know you could even compete in something like that. That's uh, I'm all ears tonight learning. Um, well, that's awesome. Uh, sounds like a great organization, and so now we yeah, know... So, so- Correcting me, they've got 150,000 members. So okay. There you go. Okay. Jeez. Um, so it's, it's yeah, the Midwestern states. It's it's unreal how um, you know. I mean, ag is such a big big part of the the lifestyle out there. Yeah, um, sure. Everybody's a member. Um, but yeah, so it's it's a pretty pretty cool organization. Um, 
and uh, yeah, it's it's fun to be a part of to to see young people, you know, venturing into ag related careers, everything from you know mechanics to forestry, wildlife. Obviously, you know some of the more traditional farming disciplines, the animal sciences and agronomy, crop management, that kind of thing. Um, but yeah, it's for the people, for those that have been around it, you know, and, and understand what it is. It's, it's definitely an awesome organization for for young people to to explore opportunities, uh, you know, because, as I said, it it covers a a ton of disciplines, really. Very cool. Now, we understand you fell in love and you moved down to PA, so now you're you're in PA. And what are you doing in PA for your career? When we were talking, you mentioned a couple of things. You mentioned... uh, forestry or a forester but you also like to log um yeah right you know so, and and uh tell us about that and how uh you might have different views or, or maybe how new england shaped your views before you moved down to pa right okay so um one of the the kind of different things and, and i'm not going to say one way is, is right and wrong really um but the background in, in New Hampshire was the uh, most of those states up there, forestry or anything sort of labeling yourself as a forester or offering forest management services or, or anything that sort of, you know, got those terms in it actually requires a license, similar to an electrician or a surveyor, something of that nature. Okay. Um, that that's not the same everywhere else. So in New Hampshire, for instance, it was any combination of six years before you could even get your license. So if you had like a two-year accelerated degree, you'd have to do four years in the field before you could take the test and go before a review board to even get your license. If it was four years of education, two years in the field, or, you know, if you, you grew up in it and, you, you know, was family business was a forestry consulting firm, six years of, of writing management plans and, and out in the field uh, doing forestry-type work, um, you, you could apply and, and take a pretty extensive written exam. You have to present at least one, possibly a couple management plans, and, and you know, there's sort of like a resume that goes into getting a license. And... Beyond that, if you're found at fault of uh, liquidating woodlots and high grading and some of the other stuff I'm sure we'll get into, your license can actually be be revoked for not promoting sustainability and, and forest health and, and those things. So um, in those states, it doesn't really matter who you work for. If you're a forester working for a logging company, you're still kind of subjected to the same same level. So you'll see the bigger sawmills have foresters and they are licensed and, you know, you'd better be, you'd still better, better be doing good forestry in the woods. Um, and there are guys that, that were like me. Um, uh, and I, I sort of look up to a few of them that did four years of school and actually got their license and, and then decided, you know what, there's, I'd like to be putting the, the actual practices on the ground too. And seeing this completely through from initial consult to a, with a landowner to to actually conducting the harvest. Um, moving to Pennsylvania, that kind of opened my eyes to a whole whole different world. They don't have any any kind of system like that here. Um, 
you don't you don't really need any any even formal training to to call yourself a forester. And uh, you know, I, I think there's uh, I might be biased because of my background. I'm not suggesting everyone needs to go to four years of school, but uh, you know, there's a lot of guys out there putting timber timber sales out and and marketing themselves as as foresters, and then you know, to really look at the practices that are that are happening on the landscape, it, it doesn't really align with forestry values and, and any sort of sustainability. So that's that's kind of where some of the issues lie, I think. Um, okay, and, yeah, and, again, and, I, and we'll definitely get into those. Um, and so you, you, I mean, I, I think somebody with more education on a subject is, would make me feel better. Um, so I don't think it's a bad thing. Um so you mentioned it's kind of like uh, more of the Wild West in, in Pennsylvania where you moved to compared to where you were at before. Is that correct? And and how is yeah. how are other parts of the country? Do you know of any other parts of the country that might be good or bad? Um, as far it's hard to say. I mean, in so in in the New England states, there's still some there. There's bad apples everywhere you go. I guess. Um, so the way it is in the New England states, and again, I haven't lived there, and we, I moved down here in 2007, so it's been 11 years since since I lived and actually was working up there. But you can actually have a logging job done without using a forester. It's just if you're labeling yourself a forester, you're supposed to have a license. So you'll still see bad practices, but if you're labeling yourself as a, you know, a, a licensed electrician or a surveyor, you know what I mean? So, so there is a there's credentials that have to be followed if you're giving yourself um, that title. Okay. From what I've seen and, and talked to some folks, uh, haven't traveled down there yet. It's on my list of, of places to go. There's parts of the South, obviously, where they take forestry pretty serious. You know, it's kind of like our the timber basket of the United States is actually the South. Uh, you know, intensive management, a lot of plantation conifer. Um, different stuff going on with bobwhite coil restoration and the level that they use prescribed burning is, you know, phenomenal compared to what, what we're doing up in the north. Um, the Midwest has, has some pretty, pretty, a, a different landscape, I guess. I, I and I'm not going to speculate here completely. I know there's a lot of, uh, Cut the length operators that move move quite a lot of pulpwood and that sort of thing in the northern part of the Midwest, but then you get down into Ohio, Illinois, Indiana, which I don't know a lot about them. I have seen them, as I said, traveling with FFA students. You know, you get in the in the walnut country and and some other stuff. So um, it's hard to know. I mean, timber timber obviously changes everywhere you go, even. Even the way oak grows in in Pennsylvania is a lot different than oak in Missouri or something of that nature. You know, there's there's always regional differences between the between species. And if that you know, to use that example too, there's even difference in in the red oak quality in in Pennsylvania versus New Hampshire. Um, New Hampshire being a colder climate, I've known veneer buyers that actually prefer to buy. They buy a lot of wood in, in Pennsylvania, but they're, they have markets where, you know, they're specific. They want X amount of growth rings per inch. You know, they want really tight, tight grain wood and they've got to go to New England and some of these colder areas to find it. So, um, oh, wow. Good forestry and good management looks, looks a lot different everywhere you go, but, uh, you know, some of the stuff we'll talk about is, is sort of 
I, I think it is pretty pretty much, uh, you know, good knowledge regardless of where you are. So, um, you know, the specifics of on the ground and what you're looking at might vary from, from state to state and even one side of the mountain to the other at times. Um, but, you know, the, the planning and, and having a good contract and that kind of stuff is, is important regardless of where you are. So. Yeah, and, and you know, Greg, like I noticed here a lot of get that we have more walkers. Hey, Jess, you're really quiet. Can you, uh, can you start that over, Jess? You're really quiet. Nope, still really quiet. How about now? Beautiful. Now, uh, sorry, uh, I accidentally turned my mic off. <laughs> it, all right, well, um, you were saying. I was saying, Greg, you know, here in Michigan, I think we have a lot more loggers and foresters that I've noticed, especially in, like, the northern Michigan. But, I mean, to, like, to you and, I mean, I guess just your state or where you're at, like, what does good forestry look like compared to bad forestry? I mean, what what's usually, like, the end game, or is there multiple end games? So, yeah, I mean, it, it really... It really boils down to, to the desire of the landowner. Um, with that in mind, though, there's you see a lot of sort of bad information being spun in a positive way. So, okay. And this 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 starts to get into some of the more technical stuff, but there are clear cuts that are done for the right reason and have good regeneration on the ground that are better forestry than, for instance, a diameter limit cut where everything over a certain size, which is usually most of the, the valuable timber in a stand, is removed, and the low-grade stuff is left behind. So that's one of the, the issues that, <clears throat> that you see and, and is pretty common, I think, in, in hardwood country is that um, you'll hear the term selective cutting a lot. And, yep. and that's a variation of a forestry term where good forestry is selection. So you would be, you know, there are individual trees that are cut based on an objective. And yeah, okay. I guess this is a, a good time to kind of kind of get into some of the analogies that are, are common if you guys want to get started on that. Um yeah, and, I, and after we do that, I got a, uh example I want you to answer. But, yeah, go into that real quick. So, you know, so for instance, one of the examples you'll commonly hear is, you know, that a forest is like a garden just on a longer timeline. And that's true. The, the problem is that you have to look at the whole analogy of a garden. So think about that in terms of, I don't know, either you guys grow a garden. I'm sure you grow a food plot. Um, I just picked my garden today, actually. <laughs> so, okay, so, yep, so think about it this way. What is, the, what is the amount of time spent actually harvesting fruit versus the time doing everything else? Oh, man, it's nothing. I harvest today in two minutes. Right. So, you know, when you think about that garden analogy, like, their soil prep, you know, some guys go as far as to, you know, you're, you're planting seeds in the basement or, you know, in a, under a grow light because you got certain plants you want to plant. 
you're constantly tending, you know, there, there's weeds that are coming out, right? And so if yep. you look at that whole analogy and you take forestry that way, that all makes sense. But normally you'll see a forest is like a garden. You got to get the, you got to go get the fruit before it's overripe and falls off the vine type of a thing. And that becomes the, the reason that we're going to come in here and cut all your high value trees and leave you with nothing else because we've got you convinced that leaving smaller trees is a good idea. And okay. just to back up a little bit, you need to know a little bit of history too. Um, I'm not a huge history buff by any means, but I do part of forestry school and, and a lot of my reading has been on sort of where where we're at today. Um, most of the eastern region, east of the Mississippi, is more forest today than it was even 100 years ago. So we've wow, seen, <laughs> yeah, I mean, so so there's actually, uh, there's some models up at Yale University. Um, I remember we, we studied pictures of them at UNH. So uh, a state like New Hampshire, for instance, at its lowest point, like pre-Civil War, subsistence farming days really was only 30% forested. It's over 75% now. Um, Pennsylvania was uh, cut over very hard. Our, you know, our original forest, they estimate, was a, a pretty heavy stocking of hemlock and white pine that was cut for building materials. The hemlock, the bark was peeled for tanning hides and so on and so forth. Um, we know that chestnut at one time was a, a big component of our our hardwood stands, and, and it's of course, gets a blight and, and no longer matures into the tree that it, it once was. Um, so you'll see those guys out there that are in the, like, barn salvaging looking for these old hand-hewn chestnut and virgin, virgin pine beams. So even our stands of nice big trees are most likely at least second growth. Um, you've had timber growing back. So there, there's kind of some tricks to looking at, at a stand of timber. So, you know, that there might be a 20-inch tree, and right next to it is a 14-inch tree. And if you were to take an increment border and actually count growth rings, they're, they're both the same age or within a few years apart. One's just got really tight growth rings, and it's kind of the runt of the litter. Well, that's not going to mature into something else. Um, and then obviously, whether it's a timber 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 management or, or even for wildlife goals, you've got the species that are are low preference for both, like black birch and striped maple and some of the other lower quality species that are often left because they're only good for pulpwood. Well, a dandelion's always going to be a dandelion; it'll never make a tomato. Um, so that's yeah, yep. that's sort of that's sort of what you know. So so good forestry is addressing all of those and there could be a host of prescriptions that that fit an objective but um to just go in so and say, you, well I'm i was gonna say if you had to put it in like one sentence like if you could take everything you know about good forestry and just put it in one layman's terms say for everyone in america i mean how would you explain that like i know that's a, a really hard question but like i want to put it in complete layman's terms so I, I would say that good forestry is having would would involve having a plan, okay. managing for overall forest health and 
trying to fulfill the objectives of the landowner. Okay. No, that's perfect. No, that's perfect. <laughs> well, so I, I, yeah, that was kind of a catch-22. But when I got a question, like in northern Michigan where uh, my family property is, they have just been decimating all the oak forests. And, I mean, a lot of these oaks, they're not just big oak forests. I mean, they got a lot of swales and undercover and swamps. And, you know, they clear them out, and they, they leave a few standing. I mean, I would say maybe not even 5%. But, oh, no. And then it just all, what do you think, Jerry? I mean, it's less than 5%, right? Yeah, every, I mean, every 10 acres, there's probably... One tree? No, I mean, I, I guess I'm... Not even. Yeah, I mean, they're just random, medium-sized oak trees left out there in the middle of a clear cut, right? And it's... And I know they leave some tops, but then it just... The poplar come right up. It's all... Then it turns into a popple haven. And to right. me, I'm wondering, is, is it ever going to become a nice oak forest again? Um, I I would hope that's part of the objective, but I, I can't say for certain, I guess. <laughs> um, okay. And this so is the DNR who's doing a lot of the cutting. So I would okay. think they would have the the interest, the best interest of the forest. But And just to, right. to expand on that, I think there's a lot of, like, oak coming up, too, with that poplar, but the poplar... Outgrows it like crazy. Yeah, shoots right up or whatnot. So maybe they'll come in and thin that out burn at some it. point or, or burn it. You could be, yeah. But uh, that's, I don't know. That's a, a pretty common practice here in Pennsylvania. Actually, we, we see a similar scenario in, in oak stands. So if you've got, so that we'll, we'll get into some more forestry stuff here. Um, so you've got options in a stand. So you can. You can thin, which, again, thinning would be, like, across all diameter classes. It's not just, you know, take the big stuff. You're, you're going to address some of the weeds and the low-quality stuff, too. Or, or you can so you, you do, like, a thinning or a tending cut, or or you aim to regenerate it. Um, there, there's some college professors that say there's not much in between, that you're either – you're either going to cut it, if you're going to cut it to a certain level that you know it's going to start to regenerate, then you'd better have, be prepared for, for what you're, you know, what you're trying to do. Or you're going to go in and you're going to go light enough that you're still going to have a fully, what we call a fully stock stand. And you're not removing so much that you're going to have so much light on the ground um, that you're going to start, you know, trying to grow the next crop of trees. So depending on the, the age of that stand of timber, and if they've got advanced advanced regeneration would be, you know, thousands of seedlings per acre of oak. What you can do is you cut, you put sunlight on it, poplar being an early successional fun or sun-loving tree rather, um, will shoot up, but it won't tolerate. It grows really fast, and then it'll... It, I mean, it does mature. Obviously, it's a huge, huge tree in your neck of the woods as far as uh, paper production is concerned. Here, it's usually yeah, red yep. maple, so you'll see you'll see oak and then red maple, and the red maple will always grow a little faster. Well, you can run a controlled burn through a, a stand like that, um, 
the maple won't take the heat where the oak will. So now you'll give the oak another two, three, four year sort of head start on top of that top killed maple. And, and that's, that's become a pretty, pretty common practice. Um, we don't use prescribed fire in Pennsylvania, uh, near as much as the guys down south do. Uh, there's a lot of forestry and wildlife folks that, that wish it was easier to do, do prescribed burns and whatnot here, even though that obviously there is some risk to them. Um, but we don't use it as a management tool, but where it is used by our team commission and our DCNR, that's a, that's a pretty common scenario to go into, into these areas that have been cut over and, and really run a fire through them to promote the oak because oak is actually pretty, pretty fire tolerant. So that, that might be the okay. point. I, I can't, I can't speak for Michigan's foresters, but, um, I, I know poplar would be the same way. If there's a lot of oak seedlings on the ground, once they're once they're well established, I, I'm betting you could run a fire through it and knock the poplar back and, and have a pretty nice nice stand of young oak. So very interesting. Now, I know a lot of a lot of people who listen to this podcast own various lands, whether it be five acres or a thousand acres. I mean, can you kind of educate some people what the difference is besides forestry management or timber management versus timber harvesting so so a timber harvest and this is what i tell a lot of the landowners that i work with is that a timber harvest really is is just an event um okay and it, it's in it's in your best interest to make that event proactive and actually better better your forest whether so if your if your objective is to grow high quality timber and, and wildlife is sort of secondary then that might be the focus if your if your goal is we really want to improve wildlife habitat then you might be looking at okay how do we where where makes the most sense from you know the way the way you like to hunt or what what i see on the ground where can we you know, do some significant canopy openings and, and get that regeneration on the ground. You know, it's no it's no secret, you know, there's been a big push in the last year, especially, I think, you know, people are starting to realize the benefit of young forest habitat. Um, so I kind of go in, you know, one of the things I normally do is, is look for the landowner and say, okay, you know, where where does this sort of make sense? Where Where are you going to get you know, where where do you have the species that are, are worth regenerating and are, are going to end up being a good good native food source for you? You know, the other thing, it may be where can we do this where we're not going to make a problem worse if you don't want to spend spend money on herbicide and, and control measures because the unfortunate reality, I think, no matter where you go, is you're always going to find competing vegetation or invasive species or both. Um so it does no good to open canopy on top of barberry and bush honeysuckle and autumn olive and a host of other problems that you're just going to make worse. So yeah, that makes sense. That that's kind of you know that was all stuff I I had to learn. You know, in parts of New Hampshire, you're more likely to see a moose than you are a whitetail, and you cut trees and stuff grows back, and and that's it. Uh, you come down here, and the unfortunate reality is we we grow a lot of a lot of weeds and either low-quality timber species like black birch and striped maple that aren't really good food. Uh, beech would be thrown into that because 
on a lot of stands, we, we really don't get high-quality peach that matures enough to produce a mass crop. Um, fern becomes an issue in, in Pennsylvania. Um, Phil and I have gone back and forth. I know he fights with them on his property. And then, as I said, you've got a host of invasives, whether it be the barberries, the honeysuckles, the autumn olives, the buckthorns, and, and a host of other things. So I'm not going to recommend a heavy cut to any landowner that's got all that stuff on the ground and isn't isn't willing to to deal with it first because you're just going to make it worse and it's a lot harder to go in there and do it after I put a bunch of put tops on the ground and you've got sunlight in there and and now you can't get through it with the backpack sprayer to treat it. It's much easier to deal with all that stuff ahead of time, um, which yeah, is so, a little bit interesting. <laughs> no, that, that's very interesting, and you know I think like a lot of people here. Uh, in Michigan, you know, a lot of landowners harvest for the money. And like Jared, kind of like your property, for example, you know, I bet that guy was more looking at money because when we walk back there where all that deadfall and tops are, it doesn't seem like there was a rhyme or reason for it. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's that, like they just came in and got the money trees out. Oh, yeah. He took uh... – all the gigantic oak trees out uh, before he sold the property. So like oaks with the you know the the stump the size of a car hood are all gone. But there are a bunch of medium sized oaks in there still that either he just said forget about it, didn't really care, or um, you know they were part of the plan. It may sound like right. as well. But yeah, there's some other I mean, stuff in there too, but. They definitely take a lot of well, some of the tops they left are as big as trees. <laughs> yeah, no, so you're right. Some of the, the diameter of the tops are bigger than the trees in my yard here at home, any of the trees. Right. But, I mean, if you still so you still have some oak in there, though, I mean, you could still tend to those. You could release one or two sides of them if there's competition around them with lower-value trees. Um, you know, that's not a – Sort of a, a crop tree release would be the formal term there. Yeah. Um, and sometimes that, you know, that sometimes I meet with landowners and it and it really is little small changes to benefit a, a you know couple little places here and there, and, and it's not really commercially viable to, to work on their property. And other times you're you're looking at a whole lot of big timber with you know problems mixed in, and, and a commercial sale does make a little bit more sense, but. Um, you know, the, the first uh, I always tell landowners it's a good idea to have, have a plan. You you may not need a super detailed 25 pages with specific inventory detail and that kind of stuff. You know, have an idea of what your what your values really are and what matters to you. And you know, try to work with somebody that who who aligns with those values and. and there's a ton of information out there, obviously. I mean, we're, everybody's connected to the internet anymore. You can, you can watch a million YouTube videos. Um, it's a, more on forestry side, you know, there might be stuff that I, I check out that maybe wildlife guys don't look into as much. Um, but, but there again, I mean, there's a ton of information out there. You can, you can educate yourself, reach out to, to your extension agents and that kind of stuff and, and see, you know, does does this really make sense, or is this guy kind of blowing smoke up my butt and trying to sell me sell me on an idea that benefits him more than me? <laughs> okay, no, that all makes sense. Um, 
Now we'll get into some of the questions that our listeners or whomever should ask when conducting one of these, but if I was on the fence and wa- of wanting to do anything with my timber, um, why would I manage my timber? It may seem like a, a simple question, but what are the advantages to doing that? Why why should somebody do that? Why should somebody call you and, and think about this? Um, as I said, I think a lot of it boils down to, to the landowner's goal. And where I'm at in north-central Pennsylvania it sort of puts things into perspective, I guess. Um, just to the west of me by like an hour, hour and a half is the – Sort of self-proclaimed, but but not far off, um, black cherry capital of the world. So everybody knows black cherry, Pennsylvania, the Allegheny National Forest, and, and a finger up into New York, uh, sort of down through western Pennsylvania and into West Virginia is some of the best black cherry in the world. Um, there's landowners that have had a hundred acres worth of, of property that might have three to four hundred thousand dollars worth of a timber resource. Wow. So when you're when you're looking at those numbers, someone that that knows the market and is looking out for your best interest really becomes as much a as much a financial advisor as as anything else. Uh, again, that that sort of um, sort of bring calls into question. You know what what is the what is the landowner's goals? What, what kind of a, a piece of ground does the landowner have? And are you, you know, if you're a landowner that's not really comfortable with proper proper tree ID, which may sound interesting. I mean, there's a lot of people that take it upon themselves to, to learn. But I've had clients that couldn't tell you a red oak from a white ash and a red maple. <laughs> so, uh you know, if you're really not comfortable with making those decisions of what to cut and what to leave, like I said, you know, some of the more specific wildlife examples of, you know, where where can I work to, to create some of these regenerate, you know, regeneration openings? Or I think uh, Rich kind of coined the term green room, you know, which is a, a group selection harvest. Does that does that make sense on my property? You know, where where can we do that kind of stuff? What what species are this? And if you're gonna do some work. How do you, you know, do you do you have an understanding of, of who your local local mills are if they're honest, or, or maybe there's a mill that's 50 miles away that pays phenomenally better better money for a certain product that you've got on your property. But if you're if you're an absentee landowner, or timber isn't your background. You may not know the ins and outs of the, the industry and and what something is is truly worth. So. Um, I think it's I think it's in a landowner's best interest to to align with with someone anyway that's um, willing to work with them and sort of sort of help them out and at least at least provide them with with quality information that uh, you know they can they can research on their own even uh, you know make recommendations but also sort of sort of validate it um, with good sources you know if that's one thing I learned from. From college, despite, you know, I had much better things to do on Thursday and Friday nights than write research papers, but, you know, you always back up your work. <laughs> no, I hear you there. Um, that's definitely what I did throughout college on Thursday and Friday, too, uh, research papers. <laughs> yeah. Um, now, you're kind of getting into questions that we should be asking, which 
is exactly where I want to go next. Um, first, we want to cover what goals the landowner has, so that's awesome. And then what are some, you know, green flags, for instance, that when I hear you talk, okay, this guy is credible or um, – I mean, we'll, we'll get into the opposite of that next, but, you know – what kind of, should I be asking about your background? Should I, what should uh, what should I look for? Um. Yeah. You know. I, I would. I. I guess a lot of it. You know, is first impression. Truthfully, um, the sort of the the interesting thing I think about the the forestry world and and the timber sales and timber buyers especially is that uh, oftentimes they're they're soliciting you, not the other way around. So you're you're sort of on the receiving end. Um, I work with a lot of landowners that have had timber cut before, uh, or are approached by you know whether it's a cold call or somebody knocks on the door and hey you know we we're on a job a couple miles down the road and we'd love to to take a look in here at, at what you've got you know you interested in selling your timber we'll we'll make you a smoking deal because we can just drive the skitter up the road. Uh, they get mailings, et cetera, et cetera. So if you've got a commodity, they're, they're looking for you. Um, you know, and the old adage is, is usually true that if it, if it sounds too good to be true, it, it very well might be. Um, but you know, there, there should be like anything really. I mean, you're getting into a, it should be considered a professional, a professional interaction. Um, Look at it really as you are, and this is sort of a different different way to look at it, I guess. Um, I view myself as much as a service provider as I do a contractor and an independent business. Even though I normally see a whole job through and I'll do everything from the initial consult to, you know, laying out a harvest and drawing the maps, because that's kind of my, you know, the, the forestry training to, you know, it, I'm one of those... If you want it done a certain way, you go do it yourself, type of a people. <laughs> and, you know, yeah. and I'll be the one out there usually slinging the chainsaw and, and doing the work. Um, and well, you're trusting, I mean, as a landowner, you're really trusting a forester or logger to come in because, I mean, they could really screw up your property or, I mean, do something so, that you really didn't have envisioned. You're, you're, you're exactly right. Um, I I usually provide references and I I have an open invite that any any possible landowner um, I will tell them where I'm working and if you want to go see an active job and a completed job hop in the truck. Um, I think that's a I, perfect example to uh, what somebody <laughs> should look for or what somebody should ask. I mean I, I I have. I really, you know, I, I try not to hide anything. Um, I, you know, and, and I think that I'm not saying that's the norm, but I, I've worked with, uh, you know, plenty of other good loggers that are, are similar. Uh, they might not be, you know, some of them are pretty, pretty quiet guys. They just like to go to the woods and, and run chainsaws and, and cut trees and that's fine. But, um, I, I know uh, of the good loggers and, and other ones that I would recommend to landowners if, if I was busy and couldn't get a job done. Uh, you know, those are the guys that, that I would put my name behind. 
you know, and that's, I think that's the thing, even, even with a, a good consulting forester that may just be putting, putting timber out for bid, they're going to try to find you a logger that's going to work because it, it ultimately reflects on them. Part of their charge is not only to, to mark your timber and solicit the bids, but also to see that the job is done in a, in a professional manner. So, um, even if you're working with a, a good consulting forester that's just handling all of those parts, they're going to want to set you up with someone that is going to do a good job and reflect positively on them. It, it's no different really than a, a contractor that you hire to build a house. If at the end of the day he hires, you know, three stoners to paint the place and it looks like crap, it doesn't matter how well of a job he did putting up the crown molding if there's splatters all over the wall. Um, <laughs> True. You know, but I mean, that's, that's the truth, you know, and, and in forestry, really, when you, you can lay out the best plan and the nicest harvest and it fits all the objectives and if the guy that shows up to cut it at the end of the day is completely careless and just makes a big mess, it sort of defeats the purpose of all the other work. Well, nobody wants to put in the effort to lay all this stuff out and make a commitment to a landowner and then say, but, you know, this guy, this is the guy you want to cut it or, or you know, this this mill offered a $1,000 for everybody else. But they're, the reason they do it is they don't pay their loggers crap and they, they're all, you know, kind of slob. Well, you, you may talk the landowner into reconsidering that, hey, you know, the, the second place bid, yeah, you're, you, that couple thousand dollars you're going to lose because this guy's going to make a mess. I, I suggest you go here. And that's, you're paying for that professional advice usually. Um, so, okay. so I think every <laughs> that that sort of makes sense, or definitely. No, yeah, and I I can relate. I used to be a business owner, and I can just kind of relate a lot of that to any small business. Um, and like some of the red flags, you know, I would think like insurance, making sure they have insurance is huge. That's and a good then, point. like right. you said, if Depending on the state, if they're actually licensed foresters. Yep. Yep. Um, and that you, you see a lot of that. Um, and and like I said, you know, there's sometimes there's stuff that you know if it if it seems too good to be true, there's usually a reason. And again, it, I think a lot of it comes back to to homework. Um, you know, I. And if, if you were a small business owner, you, you can appreciate this. I, I would rather somebody come to me and be completely, completely comfortable. Because, yes, there's pressure on, on me at that point to, to maintain that reputation. But I don't I don't want to feel like I'm forcing somebody into something they don't want to do. Um, and maybe, you know, I, I guess in a lot of ways I'm fortunate that I'm busy and I'm able to work with landowners that are like that, um, that have said, you know, no, I, I understand you're busy, but we'll wait. Uh, you know, we there's a good relationship there. They might know a past client that I've worked with and, you know, obviously word of mouth referrals and that sort of thing are the best way to, to build a business. Um but, you know, if, if somebody gets a little squeamish when you start asking these questions of, you know, what, what, what's the dollar amount, you know, or the, the per thousand board foot amount I can expect for these different species? What is the, you know, what does your closeout look like? Um, you know, that's, yeah. 
that's a big deal. You can tie up a lot of money and, and finish, you know, closing out a job properly. Um, there's a landowner here. Unfortunately, I've, I've put the, some pictures on, on my Facebook page and, and a lot of Pennsylvania guys have seen it where, you know, the, the landowner, regardless of what he got paid, I'm, I'm convinced it wasn't enough. Uh, he's got three quarters of a mile, if not more, of skid roads and it was cut in, uh, you know, the spring, spring of the year when the frost was coming out of the ground. And they made ruts that are belly pan deep. So now you've got a 70-plus-year-old landowner. They never went back and fixed it. You, you couldn't drive a, an ATV, I mean, unless it had a high-lifter kit and a snorkel. You couldn't get to his tree stand now. Well, yeah, I've seen like that. How, no, no amount of money for your timber was really enough to offset what you lost. Either you're going to pay somebody else 80 to to $100 an hour to bring in a, a dozer or some type of machine to try to fix all that, and then look at your property value. Even if, even if you plan to keep it and pass it on to your kids, you still need to look at the equity there. Um, it's like you just took your, your property and you just signed it up for a demolition dirt. <laughs> you know, I mean, there's, there, there's nothing left. So if you were to ever unload it, how much of a hit did you just take in the fact that no, no prospective buyer is going to look at this and say, yeah, this is, this is great. They're going to look at it and see, oh my gosh, this is going to cost me five, ten, whatever thousand dollars to, to fix this and remediate all of this. Um, yeah. And in the process, you know, the unfortunate reality of that is you start making ruts that deep. You've got, I mean, you guys know, you, you can't drive a tractor through a wet food plot without damaging a bunch of stuff, let alone making three and four foot deep ruts. I mean, it's like taking an excavator through the woods. So all the root systems are busted up and you're seeing a lot of residual mortality. So what what did you get? You know, the $50,000 or, or whatever it was, I, I don't know what he got paid, but you know, was it really enough? You know, when you when you when you take all the other factors off the table that you're left with, you, you probably sold a lot of timber for for not a lot of profit if you were to to do all the rehab. And the unfortunate reality is, for a guy like me, that that makes the whole industry look bad. Um, so now, guys like that, I know you refer to this term a lot, but would they be timber pimps? <laughs> so. so so uh, a timber pimp, and this is this is sort of a local jargon thing. I, I was going to say this has to be an industry wide, an industry wide term, right? But those are those are kind of the guys that uh, that sort of sell themselves as being foresters, but then are are uh, looking to take a you know pretty substantial cut and and really aren't doing good forestry. And, uh, you know, this would be another red flag. This, this sort of happens. Um, unfortunately, fortunately, I can say it's not super common. Unfortunately, I can say that I've run into it on more than one occasion. Um, sometimes what, what these guys do will, uh, they'll mark your timber and suggest that it's going out for like a competitive bid. So, you know, they'll, they'll tell you that, oh, we're going to get 15 different mills to bid on it. And, Long story short, what happens on occasion is they've actually got one mill that they work with a lot. So say I come out, I look at your timber, I mark it, and I come up with with volumes. I go to my buddy at the sawmill. He says I can pay sixty grand for it. 
I come back to you and I say, Jared, I can pay you forty-five thousand. Yeah. Meanwhile, you've got a contract now with with me, but I've got your contract already sold to somebody else, and I'm making a huge profit off of the difference. And, and then there's some really goofy stuff that gets thrown into the mix. Um, unfortunately, I'm I'm working with a landowner now. It's not unfortunate for me. Uh, I'm doing a lot of rehab work. They they fell into a similar situation where they actually gave up $20,000 to have uh, a bunch of excavation and dirt work done. They wanted food, you know, land stumped and food plots put in and whatnot. And the middleman disappeared. And the contract that the mill had that it actually offered the, the original amount of money said, well, we never saw anything about having to do that. So there was nothing really in black and white. They took a lot less money, didn't get what they wanted, and obviously felt pretty pretty short-changed in that deal. And, you know, that that sort of stuff happens. Um, I I don't want to say it's common, but but it happens uh, enough that I feel landowners should be aware of it. (laughs) No, that's crazy. I would be super pissed if... uh... I signed a contract with some guy, and he dipped before he was done. Um, now that yeah, more that, common than you think. Yeah, well, yeah, that's why I think it's it's a subject we're we're talking about because I've heard, you know, timber pins. I gotta say, it's the first time I heard that. But like, I always, you know, being on the on the whole red flag thing, I always thought you didn't want to have a forester that's a logger. You know what I mean? Like, why would you want this guy telling right. me what I should keep, what I shouldn't keep, when he's just trying to make a buck? And and now I see that there's different types, and you have to ask around, etc. But I mean, I'm I'm pretty sure on multiple forums I've heard don't hire a forester that's also a logger. Oh, I, well, it's kind of like Jared. That's not at all uncommon. I I won't I won't disagree with you. Um, and I suppose if I if I wasn't me, as crazy as that might sound, I would probably sing a similar tune. Yeah, because um, you're a forester, that's a I, right? But I I would also caution people, and and this is this is the unfortunate reality of the business is that gotcha. There are both there are there are bad apples wearing both hats. Oh, I'm and there sure. Are good, yeah, I'm there, sure. There are good ones that wear both hats. Yeah, for sure. Um, I, I, I've seen I've seen loggers that uh, that are out there cutting and skidding with horses that make a mess. Believe it or not, you know you would think like horse logging. This is pretty primitive. I mean, I've seen those guys just annihilate a woodlot, and I've seen guys with feller bunchers and grapple skidders and whole tree chippers that, especially in New England, that do a bang up job. And, and I would recommend them to cut my grandmother's place. Just because I, I know what they're doing, but again, this all goes back to the credibility. You know, you're as I said, you, you need to look at this if you're a landowner that you are you are entering into a business transaction with somebody. So if you're going to hire this person, especially, I mean, as a business owner, we all understand this. If you're going to hire somebody, you you want to know everything you can know about them before before you you hire them and, and they're going to be a face of your company. Um, right. Why why wouldn't right, you yep. do the same thing when you're talking 
potentially thousands, if not maybe hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of, of timber value on your property and a mistake that you can't fix tomorrow. Um, okay. Yeah. You're talking a crop that's on an 80 to 100 year life cycle, not to, right. not to knock the guys that, that do food plots, right? You, you get a food plot in and it doesn't germinate. You say, oh crap. And you try again in six months. Correct. You screw up your timber. There, there's no reset button. <laughs> No, that's the biggest part. No, I, I do. Go ahead, Jess. I think a lot of guys around here will go to different sources like the DNR and have a forester come out, evaluate, and educate the owner on actually what they have and right. what's valuable for the area, and then they go ahead and call a logger, um, which I think that's what a lot of guys do in our area. Okay, so to, right. add, to add on to that, Jess, uh, I believe you're right. I've heard that what you do is you have a logger that's actually recommended by the forester um, is what I've heard Correct. you do in the past. That way you're, you know, there, there's no hands in the pot and, you know, you can trust them. But I've also heard that even like the DNR, and Greg, you can help me on this, like the DNR comes out or sends a forester out, that might not be the same type of, recommendations or advice that he gives you that you're looking for. Um, maybe they recommend, you know, kill all the the crummy wood. Maybe that's what you would do too. But at the same time, if you're in it for a different goal, such as deer habitat, you might not kill a certain type of uh, a bass wood or something like that, right? Yeah. Um, or you're like, kill the bass wood. There's, there's, I mean, there is times where there's, I guess, a, a difference of opinion, but that's not a bad, bad place to start. Um, okay. To reach out to your, to your service forester. Uh, again, you know, and, and just speaking, speaking from personal experience and, and my background, you know, I, I know our county service forester on a, on a first name basis and, I'm comfortable enough with the guy to, to call him and, and bounce questions off of him. Um, I've run into issues, stuff that I, I didn't know. You know, as I said, I'm still, there's always, you never quit learning, I guess, if you're, if you're really, you know, I'm kind of a, a tree nerd. I'm more, I'm more into what I went to college for at 35 than I, I was at 18 and 19. But, um, you know, I, I still reach out to, uh, our extension agents down at Penn State and, and ask them questions. Admittedly, I'm not a, I'm not one that, you know, wants to go out and actually do research, but I sort of, you know, I definitely respect what, you know, what they're doing. Um, so, you know, that's, that's not a, a bad place to start. And yeah, you know, there, there may be, there may be differences of opinion that if a, usually what I've seen is the state guys are almost always going to go like pro, pro timber. Um, Maybe not as much into the wildlife side of things, but you know our our guy up here, he he is actually pretty good. He he respects that a, a good percentage. I don't know if it's more than fifty, but certainly a very high percentage of the land base in in my region is owned by absentee landowners. They're they're folks that don't live here, and most of them live down in southern Pennsylvania, and this is their vacation and recreation property, and. They want to grow deer, they want to see turkey, they want to shoot black bear, whatever it is. Um, and, you know, he's, he's usually, he's usually okay, um, with, uh, you know, yeah, you can, 
cut this to regenerate it, this is a good place to, you know, do your soil tests or whatever, um, you know, but you want to clear some land for food plot, this might be a good area to start. You're not going to lose a lot of timber value, so on and so forth. So, um, you know, I think it's a, a case-by-case basis, but I know locally here our service forest is pretty good. So, Okay, well, that's – Well, and I know here know. in Michigan – yeah, Jared, I, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think uh, here in Michigan, uh, a lot, most of the DNR I know up in northern Michigan, they will actually come out for free and walk your property and kind of guide you. I don't know how detailed the plan is or anything, but I know they'll at least come out to your property and walk it with you and evaluate it. Uh, yeah, I believe um, – I'm actually not sure if Michigan is or not. I don't have enough enough trees. But oh, I know I, I know that Mark, other states are, and you, they, they, yeah, they'll have somebody in – I don't know if it's a DNR or not, but they'll have somebody that works for the state or, or what have you that will definitely come out for, for free, or maybe it's the – Maybe it's the federal government, but, yeah, they'll come out for, for no charge, I believe. Yeah, I know yeah. Uh, when I was up in Luzerne at uh, Mark Arrowwood's place, he had yeah. uh, a young gal from the DNR who came out for free, and she probably spent three hours out there. Oh, there you go. That's awesome. And, yeah, the in, in Pennsylvania, that those guys are called service foresters, and every every forest district in Pennsylvania – has one and and they work for free too. Um, I mean, they don't work for free. Obviously, they're they're paid with tax dollars, but they are a they are a free free resource and and they do a lot of uh, a lot of outreach type work. So um, yeah, that's a that's a good resource. And you know, again, a lot of the a lot of the good loggers at least here also know the the same guy and he'd recommend them too. So you know, that's another. That's another resource you could you could fall back on. You know, somebody comes in and, and marks your timber before you you sign that contract. You know, feel free to call them. And, and if forest forest health and, and long term health is an issue, say you know what do you what do you think about this? And um, you know, usually I like to think anyway that that they are unbiased. You know, they're they're not trying to make a living on on selling timber. They're they're paid by the state, not a salary, and and they're paid to give good advice. So, um, I've I've had a I have a pretty good relationship with ours here uh, locally, um, and I think a lot of the a lot of the good loggers around me that that I you know a lot of them I consider friends. Um, you know, have have a similar similar relationship with them. So um, that's not a not a bad place to look. No, I, I'm kind of glad we we kind of dove into that there. That's that's a good um, a good topic we didn't even have on here. Um, so I'm I'm glad we touched on that. Now, for the I kind of want to wrap up the the red flags or the things to look for here. I want to touch on high grading, what that means briefly, and then also um, if there's any sort of association out there that foresters or loggers can be a part of where your reputation is on the line, where, you know, you're you're a part of this group, you, you, you pay to be a part of this group, we hold you to these standards, and um, if you're not part of it, we, we know it. And the reason I ask, we have that type of uh, association in, in my industry, and uh, it just kind of gives customers a, a higher level of trust in their supplier right um so so high grading by definition would be 
essentially a, a value removal cut where um, a lot, most of most of if not all of the the higher dollar trees uh, are are cut and this this kind of comes into the the management situation as, as I talked about before you know so you've got a lot of areas where our, our stands are fairly even aged. So uh, a smaller tree doesn't necessarily mean a younger tree. It, it might be a weed. You have trees that cross low or of low value species. Um, we've all probably seen uh, like the red maple that's got three, four, five stump sprouts, you know, but this was 50 years ago, so now they're all pulpwood size, but they're never going to mount anything. Usually they fall over before they mature, those kind of things. And guys will drive around that because there's no value to go cut a 14-inch tree that's not even close to mature, but it's cherry and we can sell it. So that's, unless the landowner says, look, I'm looking to liquidate this lot, uh, I'm selling it as soon as you're done, um, and I don't care what it looks like. You, you can't argue with them. I mean, I, I agree with private land ownership. I might not agree with your views on, on how to manage your timber, but you, you can't stop somebody from doing that. Um, and you sort of see that, and to some degree, uh, even even diameter limit cutting sort of gets into that. Um, as mills have gotten more efficient, you'll see it's not uncommon to see those diameters have gotten cheated lower and lower. So. 25, 30 years ago, older loggers will say, you know, we, we had the benefit that we cut trees 18 inches and bigger. Well, you were at 18 and bigger, you were leaving a lot of those intermediate 15, 16, 17 inch trees. Now the mills are more efficient. It's not uncommon to see 15 and bigger or 14 and bigger or 15 and bigger, but instead of measuring DBH or diameter at breast height, it's a stump diameter. So now your nice little 13-inch white oaks that flare out at the butt are all getting cut and going on the truck. Well, as a landowner, you're kind of selling yourself short because just a, a basic background on, on log grades and whatnot, a lot of times those smaller logs won't even make the highest grade log at the mill. Uh, anybody that's cut firewood knows, you know, basic geometry in a circle, half the diameter is actually a quarter of the volume. So if you're a mill, it's in your best interest to have 18 to 20 inch logs instead of a bunch of 10 and 11 inch logs. You've got to handle a lot less of them. You get better quality lumber off of them. And those small logs are kind of a pain in the butt. You may buy them if you need the inventory, but as far as the landowner is concerned, it's, you're almost taking a penalty. Um, and then, of course, with high grading, you're, you're not dealing with any of the junk. And that's that's kind of where, as I said, having a plan comes into place and, and knowing a little bit about values. Um, and, you know, I, I've worked kind of all across the spectrum. You have the landowners that, that are wildlife-oriented. You have the, the landowner that's really proactive and says, look, what, what can I do today? to set myself up so I can cut good timber in, in 15 years because I want to put a kid through school. Um, you know, that, that guy's really thinking ahead because you can you can manage that in a way to really pack the growth onto the valuable trees and, and actually, uh, you know, it, it'll far exceed high-quality high hardwood timber it, it, under good management usually blows, you know, a, a regular savings account out of the water. 
as far as interest and, and earnings go. Wow. Um, and, you know, barring a tornado or a significant ice storm, you know, kind of damage, you know, it, it's pretty safe. It just kind of hangs out. You know, you don't have to go fertilize it or anything. It's just, uh, you know, you, you tend it as a crop and you, you pull the weeds and you, you weave the stuff where you're really going to gain the value. And, um, you know, it's, it's, there's, there's investment firms that buy thousands of acres. You know, they're called PIMOs, a timber investment management organization. You know, so some of the biggest biggest names on Wall Street have land holding somewhere that, that are growing timber. I mean, it's a it's a pretty pretty safe asset, and it does well better than the half to one and a half percent interest you're going to get out of out of a savings account if you're if you're doing it right. Um, yeah. But again, you know that <laughs> this is where you know this is where having somebody that understands a little bit of the science and is making. Yeah, there there is some projections and, and guessing in it. You know, if if sometime in the future, you know, low low value species today are uh, are worth more than than black cherry and sugar maple and walnut, then I guess we'll all be eating our hat. But I don't see that happening. So. <laughs> no, that's a good point. So I kind of want to jump in. I think we uh, and we covered that pretty dang good. Um, but lately, you know, just in the deer world that we're hearing all these diseases, CWD and everything, I mean, as far as trees go, I mean, is there a lot of disease and invasives out there? Like, I know here in Michigan we had the real bad ash borer, and now uh, oak wilt is becoming yep. a real bad problem. Yep. So we've got uh, Pennsylvania is dealing with uh, emerald ash borer, EAB, um, so that's that's a pretty pretty hot button issue. Most of my work in the last year and, and probably in the next year is going to be ash salvage. Um, very, uh, I, I've heard different numbers. You know, one one half of one percent might prove to be immune, but no landowner wants to take that risk if they've got valuable timber. Um, yeah, we th- there is some some pockets of Pennsylvania that also have oak wilt. There's a there's quarantines on on moving oak. Uh, a lot of a lot of Pennsylvania wood, believe it or not, ends up uh, headed north on the highway as a backhaul to Canadian mills. And there's certain areas that they won't won't haul oak out of for that reason. Um, we've got an invasive pest in hemlock. That would be hemlock woolly adelgid. Uh, I'm not sure of the the forest type out there. I, I don't know that the hemlock is native in, in your area, but it's pretty common. It's actually the state tree of Pennsylvania. And um that's a another foreign insect that's that's proven pretty detrimental. Um the most recent one that's got everybody pretty scared here is a spotted lantern fly. They found that down in I think there's thirteen counties in southeastern PA a few in Maryland, down into Virginia, um, and and they're finding new stuff that this thing eats all the time. Uh, the the biggest threat right now, I guess, is uh, orchards, uh, vineyards, hops producers, um, and it's just nasty. Uh, there's a ton of information out there on on what they're doing, trying to trying to stop it, but they're finding it in maple, cherry. 
tool poplar, you know, they're seeing that it's also also works on on trees. And one of the the biggest issues with it, I guess, from a forestry standpoint, is it's a sap sucker. Um, but it also the uh, it as an insect, it just processes the sugars and every like all of its excrement comes out and ends up being like black sooty black mold, I think is, is the proper term for it. Uh, I'm sure there's some entomologists that listen to this and are gonna correct me on all this, but um <laughs> they're like it's it's just nasty. I, I mean like you'll you'll see these things, I mean they just they literally just eat and crap. I mean that's all they do. And this mold takes over, so you don't get any kind of stump sprouts. Um, you'll see, I mean, real estate agents are actually some of the loudest voices, you know, complaining about this because they've noticed that these things swarm in southeast Pennsylvania. And that's not something they saw over in, in China and North Korea, where it, it was also invasive, I guess, in Korea, and it spread across the whole country pretty quick. But um like, people don't even want to go outside. Like, it looks like the plague. Uh, I've seen some videos from entomologists and extension agents down there that that it's just nasty. Uh, I've got some friends in the tree care business down there that say, you know, they're just, it, it's just miserable. It's unreal how they don't bite or sting humans. It's just, you know, there's so many of them in these swarms that they've had daycares where they've had to keep kids inside and stuff. So oh who, who knows how that one who knows how that one's going to turn out? But yeah, a quick Google search of, of spotted lanternfly, and, and you'll find more information than you you could ever read in a couple nights worth of stuff. Um, hopefully, they figure out a way to to keep it contained. You know, it's it's one of those things where I don't I don't. It's hard to say. You know, they they'll uh, they've seen them. They they lay their eggs on pretty much anything, so it's hard to. You know, anything, even a, a semi-truck parked in a rest area and, and sleeping for the night, hops on, you know, hops back on the interstate the next day, could very well carry an egg mass into a non-quarantine zone. So it, it's sort yeah. of a, it, it's sort of a, a grim outlook, I guess. Um, but, you know, they're doing what they can to control it and confine it to the counties where they've got it. Um, my understanding is money's been allocated straight from straight from D.C. to get some pretty high-level folks in uh, APHIS and uh, other entomology folks working on this and other state agencies and really looking at ways to uh, to combat it and, and sort of confine it to where it is and, and not have a, a much bigger problem. So hopefully uh, hopefully they're successful in it. There's been a huge campaign to, to make the public aware of it, that's for sure. Um, every every Farm show. I was at Ag Progress Days today, which is kind of like a big, uh, big gathering. Tons of farm equipment vendors and stuff. Went down with my wife and some students. You know, they had a huge, they had a handful of them actually. They had a couple that were more geared to kids and some that were more for the adults. And this is what we're doing to stop the spread. And if you see it outside the quarantine zone, please, please call us. And you know, we we want to be as proactive as we can. But but that's a pretty nasty one. Um, now, Greg, yeah. that, that sounds pretty terrible, and actually, Jesse, it sounds a lot like the way we're starting to treat CWD around here, or maybe not just around here, but not moving carcasses, etc., and, and you're even talking about how a, a semi could spread that disease. That's, 
That's crazy. I don't think we're, uh, I don't think I've even ever heard of that bug. Um, no, well, even, uh, they tell, you know, I mean, don't transport firewood now ever since ash borer. Yeah, right. Yep. So, so we have the ash borer for sure, and we are susceptible to uh, oak wilt. I'm not sure if we have anything else really crazy like that in Michigan. Um, Jess, are you aware of anything? Mainly the oak will, and then uh, there was a beetle. I forgot the beetle that was real bad back in the early 90s. Um, but it's funny because uh, the house I just bought has a beautiful ash tree in the front yard, and the guy said he treated it. I forgot what he was treating it for, but it's a, it's a beautiful tree. Cause my old property, they're all just dead and standing, so it's interesting. Yeah, and there is a... There is a you you can inject a chemical under the bark. Um, yeah, he did inject it. I know that. Pennsylvania is doing that on you know legacy trees that you know the ones down around Gettysburg and some of those other areas. The you know the hard part with a uh, for a woodlot owner, of course, is the cost. It's somewhere in I've, I've heard different numbers, but somewhere in the neighborhood of fifteen to twenty dollars per diameter inch so you know a 20 inch tree might cost you somewhere in the neighborhood of 300 bucks which you know if it's in your front yard 300 bucks every year or two might not be too bad to to save that as a shade tree but um you know no landowner with with 100 acres and 50 loads worth of ash scattered across it's got got that kind of money to keep them alive so So now if, if they all die do you go in there and do some sort of rehab project, or, or what do you do on, on something like that where, say, the ash borer moved through and wiped out all the ash? So normally, you know, it, it's a salvage operation at that point. Um, I started, and I think this is common across the industry here, we sort of watched it progress from the Midwest into western Pennsylvania in the quarantine zones of moving logs and just trying to slow it down got progressively bigger. So starting a few years ago, we cut, we started cutting ash sort of preemptive, I guess. Um, and truthfully, some of those have stump sprouted and you are seeing healthy young growth on them. Now, whether we'll see a, a population drop where, you know, emerald ash borer is a species specific in that it won't, as far as we know, it's only targeted ash trees. You don't see EAB is here and and all the ash died and then they went after sugar maple. Um, It seems they're specific to ash. So will you see a a huge plummet in, in the numbers of the bug once this host is gone? We're not quite sure. Um, so there there are stands with some young ash that haven't been hit yet, so nobody really knows. Um, I know the state of Pennsylvania, and I wouldn't be surprised if some of the Midwestern states, but I know Pennsylvania and New York had some pretty pretty intensive uh, seed collection years uh, leading up to this where they were gathering ash seed, and they're going to keep, you know, trying to grow it and see, you know, can we, can we bring it back? Um, but from a from a forestry standpoint, again, you know this this gets into some of the some of the stuff we talked about with decisions to cut and some of the the problems you might see. So if I walk a woodlot and I see a landowner's got invasive species or competing vegetation under a bunch of ash that is in decline, at that point 
Mother Nature is creating a canopy gap whether you like it or not. You know, a tree with no foliage, you know, has plenty of sunlight on the ground. I don't have to come and cut it. So I can't always convince a landowner to use herbicide and, and take some of those precautions, but usually that's one of the first things that, that I look at is as this stuff dies and, and falls out of a stand, are, are we going to have problems on the ground, and, and what can we do to sort of mitigate those from the get-go? Um, and then from there, you know, if there is a if there is a harvest, you you sit down with a landowner, and some landowners are, hey, just cut the ash because that's what that's what's dying. Others others decide, well, you know, let's let's look at some other stuff. Is there other areas we can do some improvement work in, or you know, kind of kind of try to align with with their values and and set it up as you would any other other timber sale. The unfortunate reality is, you know, some some landowners weren't weren't prepared for it. And like I said before, you know, that, that kind of goes into having a plan. It's not a bad idea to kind of know what's in your woodlot, and you certainly don't need to know every tree, but know, hey, I've got, this is kind of an estimate of what I've got for oak, and this is what I've got for maple, and those those landowners tend to fare a little bit better because it, it seems every couple of years we're finding a new pest and a new problem. So at least at least then you kind of know, hey, we're, we're experiencing oak wilt in this county, and I've got an estimated 15 tractor trailer loads of the stuff. You know, I, I can't, I don't want to lose that that value. And you can you can plan accordingly instead of just being reactive. But hey, all my trees are dying. Well, at that point, so isn't everybody else's. Good luck finding somebody to come deal with it. So, um, <laughs> no, I I think uh, that's we we covered that. A lot in terms of at least you know what to do if something does happen to you. Um, you got to keep your eyes out for what's going on in your neighborhood in terms of what type of disease. Um, you know, I think uh, I've heard that recently. Now, basically, I'm going to kind of just summarize here. Um, it would be important, and, and jump in if I'm wrong anywhere. So it would be important for the landowner to really figure out what their goals are, whether they want to put a kid through college or, you know, manage it for wildlife. That'd be your first step. Second step, you probably want to do some research, ask around, see who uh, who's trustworthy, maybe get your, your state forester out there. And then um, once you do that, you, you, you start locating the, the certain company and uh, form a contract, and then the job would would begin and go on. And then in the end, you need to make sure you're not getting screwed when the guy leaves with his with his wood. You want to make sure everything's <laughs> cleaned up right. I mean, did I cover that in like the most basic way possible? Yeah, I mean that's that's pretty uh that, that's pretty much it. it, it I mean, I guess the only thing I would I would add to that is that. Doing nothing is a conscious decision too, okay. um, and sometimes you know what I mean. Like sometimes there are landowners that I, I get contacted, and it's hey, I I'm really interested. I just kind of want to know what's here. Um, usually, it, it, especially following the the pest problems we just talked about, I don't even know if I've got any ash. Can you come take a look? And if they don't have a lot of ash. That might be the end of the conversation. It's a handshake. Nice to meet you. 
you know, and, and that's where you leave it. They they weren't planning to do any kind of a timber sale. They like it the way it is. If they had ash, they might try to recoup the value. But doing absolutely nothing is a conscious decision to just let it go and, and be what it is. Um, obviously, the other stuff is certainly true. The you know finding somebody that aligns with your values and whatnot. If you if you opt to do anything commercial, um, and like I said, you know I work with those landowners too. That uh, hey, we're we're kind of do it yourselfers, but I want a little bit of help. I'm really not comfortable with you know I know shag bark hickory because it stands out. The you know the bark gets really shaggy. I can ID those, but what do you think about this and what do you think about that? And, you know you. Pretty much tell them, hey, this is this is what it's going to cost. I can't I can't come out here and spend an entire day and write you a plan for nothing. This is kind of my my job. But here you go, you get done. Here's here's a few pages of ideas and, and the sources I use. Um, because as I said before, I <laughs> I like to back up what I do. So there there's usually links to Penn State and Cornell and and a bunch of other online resources that if the landowner wants to know even more of the specifics and the basic stuff I put in a plan, they can look that up themselves, and then they go to town, Um, and and that's it. It's not not really commercial. It's just you you help them with an inventory and and some ID stuff and and, and go from there. Um, No, that's I don't claim to. Um, you know, it's not, it might not be some of the specifics. I, I know you've had guys like, uh, Jake and a few other, uh, you know, habitat specific guys that, that really get into food plots and stand placement and all that stuff. You know, that's, that's not really my, <laughs> my thing. I mean, especially, you know, and I work with a lot of multi, multi-person hunt clubs where, you could give them ideas and one guy's still going to walk out the door at six o'clock in the morning smoking a cigar. So. It's not going to matter what what you tell them anyway. <laughs> no, I yeah. agree, uh, and and I think it's good to bring on, you know, somebody like you who may who may have a different outlook on things and, and cover all the bases. I think that's important to look at things from both sides always. Um, and, and I think you bring up some good points. You know, guys like Jake and uh, some of the other guys we're going to get on here would would uh, ask the same the same question though. What are you managing for? Are you managing for timber or are you managing for deer? They're not always the same. Right. Um, so, I, I no, I think that's good. I think we spent, you know, a good hour and a half covering a ton of good information on this, Greg. Now, we haven't talked about hunting really at all yet, and that's kind of a long time for me to go without talking about hunting. Um <laughs> Are you doing any hunting this fall? Are you are you excited about it? Let's let's wrap this up talking about some deer or something. I mean, what do you like to do for fun um, in, in the hunting woods? Well, uh, if, if I'm being brutally honest with you, I'm looking looking forward to September first and a layout line and a goose call. Okay, um, all right. I've been I, there before, I, uh, Jesse too. Yeah. I uh, if I. I enjoy deer hunting, don't get me wrong, um, but I, I usually work by myself, so there's something, there's just something cool about the camaraderie of, you know, hanging out with your buddies, and, and I love to, to waterfowl hunt um, more more so than I like to deer hunt, truthfully. Um, so I'm I'm looking forward to our, uh, our early nuisance goose season. I've already been watching a bunch of oat and wheat fields that have been coming off that Got my eyes on a bunch of flocks of birds, so we're we're ready to put the smack down. Um, 
And then, yeah, well, I bet you I'll like to uh, duck hunt flooded timber then. Oh, yeah. I, <laughs> you said you're in both your elements. <laughs> we don't have a, a lot of it. it it's, I mean, Arkansas is on the bucket list of places for me to go for sure. Um, just to just to see, you know, the the quantity of ducks they hold down there. Um, but yeah, so that's that's where I'll be be starting, and then I do have a pretty pretty good piece of private land to hunt. Um, of all things, actually, they're they're friends of a pretty good friends of my wife and I. We met them through um, through fair actually, um, with my wife being the ag teacher. And they've got they've got a beaver swamp, so the the hunting story actually started with you know can I duck hunt in here? <laughs> and then uh, you know they're like we're we've got we've almost got too many deer. You know you you get a doe tag this year, and you're gonna come up and kill some of these. So I'll uh, I'll definitely be be spending some time in a tree stand up there. Um, but yeah, I'm really looking forward to honker season for sure. Yeah, that's awesome, Jesse and I. Uh... I used to chase those around a lot. I chased them all through college, uh, even in high school. The young man's game. Waterfowl. Yep, yep, no <laughs> doubt. We're uh, getting too old. <laughs> I, yeah, I, there's, it's just so tough around here. I mean, we have the crop fields uh, for early goose, which also starts on the 1st of September. But, I mean, there's a we're so close to – Big city that every field you find around here has been scattered out by three trucks, at least. Yeah. At least from what I've learned, and uh, well, I don't know. Early fun. season, it's always like ninety still. Well, that too, but it'd be fun to get out there and bust a few. That's I love shooting them. That's fun. Um, yeah. Jesse, what about you? Your your cellular trail camera still broken, or are you getting some buck pictures? You're not telling me about yet. <laughs> I'm not getting anything. I was actually going to run out there today, but I got stuck at work. So I guess I I can put an update in it that I didn't know about. But I'm going to run out there and check a few other cam, the other cam, and um, try to f with it first. But uh, yeah, I want to see what we got going on the farms. And then I got to we got to go out and hang a few stands quickly. Yeah, we're getting down to the. Stay out of the woods time, so. Right, right. Well, cool. Guys, anything else you want to cover? Um, I mean, I don't know. We, we, we really dove into a lot. We can always get you back on, Greg. I really do appreciate uh, you coming on. I mean, very knowledgeable guy, and I do. What I like about you the most, I think, is your, uh, your humble modest approach to to being knowledgeable but not being cocky, not being you know not being the the know it all and having the having the guts to say, Well I don't you know, I'm still learning stuff but this is what I know and, and I tend to try to do that a lot in, in the way I approach things and uh I find that pretty respectable. So appreciate you coming on, definitely. Oh, not a problem. Not a problem. Yeah, you, you can't. Uh, there's always new stuff happening. You can't. Uh, can't quit learning. I mean, there's always, always people doing research, and um, whether it's on the wildlife side or the, the forestry side or the stuff that overlaps. You know, I mean, well, the new, you know, fairly new research. I guess you know the whole mineral stump thing. They finally decided to, you know, see. What, you know, I mean, that was that was kind of a big deal. You know, every everybody in the forestry world knows, no, and you cut a tree down and it grows back, and deer eat it. But 
finally take the time to go and say, hey, you know, that's, this is why. Holy cow, look at the protein and mineral levels in this stuff. And, yeah, that uh, was you know, pretty cool. Pretty, pretty cool research, you know. It's just different people looking at different stuff. And, um, yeah, always, always stuff to learn for sure. Awesome, man. Well, thank you again very much. Um, really do appreciate it. And, uh, you know, keep us posted. How you doing with those hawkers? Send us some pictures. And um, we'll be in touch soon. Oh, and I guess to answer, you'll have oh, you to know what? all this. You know what I skipped? I also want you to say how somebody can reach out and find you, buddy. Um, well, I was going to – so you would ask the question. Um, so as far as organizations go, there's a few of them out there. Um, ACF is the Association of Consulting Foresters, and they, you know, that is specific to the guys that make their living as consultants. And then uh, the more common and, and I guess larger one would be SAF, that's the Society of American Foresters. They actually, they're pretty good size. They sort of accredit the college programs and whatnot. So most of the state schools that have a forestry program, it's through SAF. They have a certified forester program, um, but that's for everybody. So there's there's FA, uh, SAF foresters that are private consultants, uh, college professors, a lot of state foresters are some some level of SAF uh, fed guys. Um, they they kind of cover everybody. And then on the logging side, there's um, a, a lot of loggers go through some level of, of training. So that's a good place to look is, you know, the guys that are at least at least going to the, the professional courses in Pennsylvania. It's three levels. Um, there's like an environmental environmental component and the best management practices for water quality and that kind of stuff, CPR, um, game of logging. That's something we didn't really touch on, but that's sort of safe selling practices. Um, a lot of... You know, I guess I should stress as a logger that, you know, I I, I like to see guys, even the do-it-yourselfers, to, you know, wearing the helmet and the chaps because uh, in logger training, you'll learn just how bad a chainsaw wound can be and, and how quick you're dead. Um, it's, it's fun to go out there and make sawdust and make a bunch of noise and put trees on the ground, but, you know, you have to respect the tool you're using, too. Um, yeah, we should probably cover that <laughs> in our, our next episode with you, uh <laughs> probably dive into that for sure. And then the, uh, you know, there's, there is an organization that um, I, I've actually gotten to know the guy in, in Maine and a few states have adopted. Um, there's the American Loggers Council, and they've adopted a program called Master Logger. And Master Logger is a little different than the training in that they actually do have, like, an audit. So all of the stuff we talked about, you know, are you doing a nice job in the woods? Are you protecting the water quality? Are the jobs closed out properly? Like all of that stuff is actually inspected. Um, it's kind of a, I don't want to say it's a new thing. It's been around in some states for a while. Michigan and Wisconsin do have them. They've got a Facebook page where they'll, they recognize their master loggers in, in the states. Um, the New England one is based in Maine and covers most of the Northeast. And, uh, yeah, it's, you know, I, I think it's, it's kind of a way forward. It's, it's actually a longer run, but part of the, part of the deal, you, you're paying to be in it, but they'll kick you out. Um, talking to the guy in Maine, he said they actually dropped a couple of guys this year. They, they had complaints and he said, we, we go 
go out in the field, we audit them, and, you know, they're, they're repeat offenders. It wasn't a one-time, you know, like this week, we got a six-inch rain event, and you had a little bit of erosion. Well, holy cow, you know, it's a 100-year rain event. You can't hold that against the guy if for the last 20 years he's been doing a good job, you know, but when you're getting one of these calls every three months from a different landowner saying this guy's making a mess, then they boot you from the program. Um, no, no more master logger title for you. So, um, you know, that's, that's something a landowner could, could look into. And, um, you know, it's, uh, I, I don't want to beat a dead horse, but, you know, I, I want landowners especially to understand that, you know, all of, all of the processes have to line up. So even if you, if you're working with a consulting forester, he's obviously going to want to find you a good logger, but, but make sure that's the case. And, and if you're, uh, timber gets sold maybe to a sawmill, which is pretty common here, you know, and, and they're contracting the logger. Make sure it's spelled out. This is, this is how I expect my property to look. You, you know, you're, you're potentially, you know, have hundreds of thousands of dollars into buying this piece of property and you've got a valuable asset. So I don't, I don't think it's wrong to expect somebody to treat it as such. Um, and that's, you know, that's, that should be the biggest, biggest takeaway of all this is, you know, think think about what it's all worth to you, and and make sure that that you're uh, you're comfortable with the people you're going to be working with. No, I think that's uh, the answer to the organization <laughs> question, and and how you want to, I guess, check the credibility, right? Right. Well, I forgot. Yeah, and I think you. with oh, go ahead, Jess. I was going to say with any service you do, whether you know, habitat consultant, having a guy put food plots in, uh, a logger forester. I think the the overall thing is do your research uh, of the company, the owners, you know, look at some of their work because, I mean, we work hard for our money and you don't want to waste it. Right. And and one, one last point, I guess, is that forestry sort of, changes the game a little bit in that oftentimes the landowner ends up on the receiving end. So, and this is a personal observation, I'm not saying it's the same for everybody, but you'll see most of us, I think, if we know we're getting good service and we're paying for it, you'll pay a little bit more. So, if you know you take your car to this garage and they might be a more, you know, $5 more an hour, but everything's always done right, you're willing to pay that. You're buying a new bow, you go to a, the local archery shop where you know you can try yep. it out, you know you can get good service, et cetera. Then you change it into forestry, you're on the receiving end. So it's somebody's offering you a dollar and cent amount. Well, make sure you're comparing apples to apples because one guy might offer you 25000 and the other guy's offering you thirty. Well, if the guy offering 25000 is the one that's going to cut the pulp wood reseed the roads, you know, widen out a road where you want a food plot, you know, and really aligns with your values, and the 30000 guy is going to leave you a mess, the twenty five grand might be the better deal in that situation, but it, it doesn't always look that way until you really sit down and, and do the comparison. So that is one place where the, the landowner can sort of get taken advantage of is, you know, you just hear the, you hear the dollars and cents amount without really looking into what that equates to on your property and all of a sudden they're, you know, that, that little bit extra isn't really enough. Um, you know, and that's another sort of red flag I should point out is that 
sometimes you'll have buyers come out, you know, and they'll they'll throw a really high number. Um, but that high number isn't really what they intend to pay you. So you'll see timber sales that are done on some level, like a percentage sale, where you and I are splitting the values. Well, if I give you, if I tell you, oh, this stuff ought to be worth a buck a foot, well, you're like, holy cow, that's crazy. You know, there's 4,000 feet on a triaxle, and you're already, like, you know, I'm buying a new pickup truck and a duck boat, and, you know, you, you've already got it spent. <laughs> And then you realize, you know, the, the, you're working with a logger on a 50-50, and a dollar just turned into 50 cents. So he's not really lying to you. You just you just heard the bigger number, which isn't exactly false, but that's pre-charges, you know. And that that sort of stuff kind of happens. Um, so, you know, these are these the some of the... What's that? Some more isn't always better, right? You know, like I said, it really gets into the understanding of, you know, you you want a, a contract, you know, and, and this surprises me truthfully, but I've met landowners after the fact, again, that, that didn't have a formal contract. I think I used the example of, you know, that it was a handshake deal with a middleman that, yeah, you know, we're, we're going to take $20,000 off and we'll stump these couple areas out for you and, and they'll be ready to plant clover in and, and you'll have two new food plots and, uh, you know, it was a handshake deal. Well, with nothing in writing, they couldn't hold anybody accountable. But you, you're short twenty grand. Well, that's a huge chunk of money. Um, oh, yeah. so, you know, I mean, what you don't normally get into a business agreement with that sort of money floating around without some sort of contract. And yet, I, oh, I finally end up. Unfortunately, they get burned all the time. So, um, it's it's worth it to. Again, I mean, this goes back to the homework thing, but also, you know, make make sure you understand exactly exactly what's being spelled out. And, and as I said, from my perspective, I want a landowner comfortable. I don't want to spend $1,000 to move in my skidder and my loader just to have them get cold feet. I mean, I, I want them to know this is how this is going to work, and, and here, you know, when we get started, and, and this is how it's going to look, and if they want to go visit a, a past job, that's no problem. Um, you know, part of the I feel part of my job is to, to educate, um, and and that's you know all, all that kind of goes together. So I want the landowner comfortable, and I think that should be that's really a goal of, of any business, whether you're in car sales or you know you're you're the pizza guy. You know, you want your your restaurant to be comfortable and people to come back. You, you want people to have a, a pleasurable experience. You know, when you work on their car, you know, that's that's sort of how, as I said, I, I think it's as much, it should be as much a service business as a, this is what we can pay you for your timber and get out of the way type of a deal. Um, yeah. But, but that kind of stuff still happens, so. Greg, how can one find you online if they were to want to reach out and learn more about you? Uh, so... There is a Burnson Timber Facebook page, and there is a BurnsonTimber.com is the website. I'm I'm more active, I guess. I, I try to take updated job photos and stuff, and, and post my rants on Facebook. Um, and you know, there there again, some of them some of them are pretty honest. You know, I think my last one was a, a job I did. And, you know, I'm I'm not upset with the outcome, but I was hoping for for better. You know, we've got some competing vegetation coming in and a in a cut. You know, as of right now, the landowners are still pretty happy with it. They've got awesome cover. They're seeing a ton of deer. 
Um, you know, but shooting, shooting for better. So, you know, it's one of those stands we may be, may be looking to do a little work in in the future and, and try to bring it around and, and get oak regen and, and a few other things that, that we didn't, we got some, but not in the quantity that I wanted. Yep. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I don't know if that goes back to the humble thing, but, you know, I, I own it. Um, you know, <laughs> I did the job and, and I, I didn't get a, I'm not surprised at the result, but at the same time, you know, you always always want to do better. I think that that's how a business should be too, striving to striving to meet an objective and and excel at it. So um, there's I try to try to keep the Facebook stuff educational and um, you know show show what I'm doing and and uh, educate that way. So there's a bunch of videos on stuff we've covered tonight there, um, and yeah, that's that's probably the easiest way to go. Awesome, man. Well, thank you very much for that. Um, and your last name, spell that out for us. B-E-R-N-D-T-S-O-N. All right, that's your last name. Yeah, in case anybody <laughs> looks up the, the burns of logging, that's, that's, what you, that's how you have to spell it. So. All right, yeah. Well, thanks again, Greg. I really appreciate you coming on. Um, we'll have to check back in with you later this year, see how your goose hunts went, and um, you know, just just really appreciate the time, man. Thank you very much. Yeah, you got uh, you got any more questions? You know how to you know you can find me on Facebook at Messenger and whatnot. Yeah, this is this has been fun. So hopefully you uh, you guys got some good stuff out of it. Oh, definitely. Yeah, no, I appreciate it. Well, that was a discussion. He is a knowledgeable guy in the timber side of things. For a young guy, Greg knows a ton. I really appreciate him coming on. Um, hopefully he slays the geese uh, next couple weeks. That, that's always a good time, too. Uh, okay, back to business. Thank you so much for listening. Really appreciate it. Um, always excited to keep doing this. you know. And I just want to let you guys know that we're having a good time over here. If there's anything we're missing that you like, you don't like, let us know. Uh, Facebook's a great place. Um, email on the website, you know, whatever you want to do. Uh, for more podcasts, if you do like, go to HabitatPodcast.com. Go to the Habitat Podcast Facebook. We're uh, pretty active on there in terms of other pictures and projects. Um, Matt, our episode number four guest, just sent me some trail cam pictures tonight. I'm going to throw those up there. I'm sure we're all getting in that mood. And, uh, you know, just just that's a good place to, to stay connected, if you will. Um, iTunes, Stitcher, Podbean, um, working on, uh, I think it's SoundCloud and uh, Spotify as well. Multiple places where you can, you can listen to us. So find us on there. I know we have decals. Uh, for sale at the Outdoor Devotion website. It's pretty easy to put them on that website, so that's what we did. And then we have t-shirts available, too. You have to find the Facebook post for those. Guys, thanks again. We'll be back next week with another great episode. Um, you know what? And just keep tagging along. We're trying to become better habitat managers and, uh, you know, just, just be the best that we can be and, and enjoy our woods. So thanks a lot, and uh, have a good night. We'll talk soon.
Thursdays with Saltwater Experience. Brought to you by Golden Boat Lift. Every Thursday night from 7 to 10 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV. The destination for outdoor entertainment. Don't miss Mondays with Into the Blue. Brought to you by Academy Sports and Outdoors. Every Monday night from 7 to 10 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV. The destination for outdoor entertainment.